2: Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Consequence Uncut, a series that gives listeners and readers a deeper dive into our features with major artists.
3: For this episode, we're talking to John Baisley, frontman of the metal band Baroness.
4: What I've always been interested in doing is like touring with bands that I like, you know, there is totally in the music industry, there is this idea that you have to choose support bands that are "Quote unquote" worth tickets or have a historic relevance at that venue, so so they go. Okay, well, last night these bands here they sold eight hundred tickets, so they should be worth. And it makes me want to vomit. It makes me want to fucking kill somebody to hear the careers of my peers reduced to ticket counts in A markets. You know, it's just we did none of us, not even one of us, got into the music industry to be part of that. We got in it to be
3: against that.
2: I'm Mijan Zulu, lead podcast producer at Consequence.
3: I'm Spencer Kaufman, managing editor of Heavy Consequence.
2: So, Spencer, welcome to Consequence Uncut. And also, so nice to have a heavy interview on Consequence Uncut.
3: Yeah, it's very cool. And for the first heavy one, you have a really good subject. Uh, John Baisley is one of the brightest musicians in uh, heavy metal, just a real renaissance man. He's also a visual artist. All of those elaborate Baroness album covers were painted by him and just a really smart and intellectual uh, person.
2: And you know, like just even in listening to the interview, I mean, John is just, he's such a musician, you know, like he knows like the intricate details to everything that he's creating, you know, hearing him talk about metal, hear him talk about his own music, hear him talking about melody, hear hear him talking about performing, like everything is so well thought out. So Spencer, it's so nice to have you on Consequence Uncut. So nice to have a metal Consequence Uncut episode. And so nice to feature such an amazing musician like John Baisley. is phenomenal.
3: Yes, he's just a really cool guy. Real renaissance man. is a great visual artist. If you ever notice the elaborate paintings on the cover of Baroness albums, that's him. And uh, just a really smart guy and a pleasure to talk music with.
2: I know I was looking at the Stone album cover before we did this recording and like, honestly, like he is really, really talented. Wow. And, and then also just like even in listening to his interview, like he knows every single intricate detail of melody making of performance and, and getting to hear him talk about what it is that inspires him from his crate digging was just really special.
3: Yeah, we do a feature on Consequence called Crate Digging, where an artist comes up with 10 albums from a certain genre that influenced them or just were happened to be their favorites. And with John, uh, what we did was 10 metal albums from the 1990s that he thinks every music fan should own. And the interesting thing about him is, and he admitted this right up front in our conversation that he wasn't a metal fan for most of the 90s in fact yeah. he was more <laughs> yeah he was more of a punk and hardcore guy which is interesting because Baroness you know is essentially a metal band and one of the mm. most respected metal bands of the last 20 years i'd say for him to come out and say that a lot of those bands and a lot of these albums in the metal world didn't resonate with him until after the 90s was quite interesting
2: And it was so funny because it's like, as he goes to the interview, it's like, you can see him falling in love with metal. You know, he was like, like, I do not really like this. And then I like this and And then finally he like found his like metal, his gateway drug into metal.
3: Yeah. And to give a little like behind the scenes uh, for the listener that you didn't get in the written piece that we posted, he actually gave me a list of 15 albums right when we started talking, we had to kind of narrow it down to 10, a couple of them were my decision. He had put Nirvana and Jesus Lizard on there. And I said, just for the purposes of them not being true metal, we can knock those off the list. And then another three at the very end, he had to make a final decision, uh, which one of the remaining four that he wanted to put on the top 10. So it was a really, you can see he was going through like the process as we were talking. So that was really interesting as well.
2: And then also like, I really, really liked the part of the interview where like you get to hear about the making of stone their new album and you know like like everyone during covid like we're all just like what are we doing with our
3: lives (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he uh you know he told me that the band actually rented an airbnb equal distance from philadelphia and new york city in a remote area of pennsylvania where they kind of holed up and lived and recorded the album he said it was an excellent experience because the band bonded And was really able to come together and put this album out without distraction.
2: I know. And like, I wish I had that type of productivity during COVID. I think I just basically like stayed on my couch and just hoped for the best. (laughs) But I'm really glad that they were industrious. Also, hearing about him like creating his own studio and really taking back the control. No,
3: yeah. The cool thing was he was talking about how he got a lot of the equipment on Craigslist and like like marketplace and stuff like that you know just like any like up-and-coming musician would try when they're starting a band the fact that he put basically all the equipment together from stuff he got secondhand
2: there seems to be this trend of like musicians taking the power back recording their own albums taking that creative control back for themselves really getting back into the music making and and the creative process. And I really think that it really shows. Like I remember when you were talking about you, the, the, the song Shine. It was like a heavy consequence song of the week. And you can just hear that every single part of what went into that comes out in the song.
3: Yeah, yeah. And they're really musically, technically proficient band. And they had this really great guitarist, Gina Gleason, who joined about, I want to say, five or six years ago. And she's brought this whole new dynamic to the band and going back to his crate digging you'll see like some really cool bands mentioned as part of the acts that that influenced him including like Entombed and At The Gates and Death and I won't give them all away but just a really interesting list and we published the written list it got some of the most positive feedback i've ever seen on a like a top 10 list. <laughs> That's awesome. The readers on Facebook, yeah, they were like this is one hell of a list, a lot of the a lot of the comments on social media, so yeah, he really thought it out and it was a really cool list.
2: Awesome. Well, i cannot wait for everyone to check out this interview.
3: Yeah, so go ahead and check out the crate digging to see John's list of 10 essential 90s metal albums. It's a really cool list and he gives his descriptions of each album. It's a really great read.
2: Awesome. So now I'll turn it over to Spencer and John Baisley of Baroness for this interview. Please enjoy.
3: Good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. I think we spoke last year at uh, Louder Than Life backstage. uh, Oh, right. (laughs) And it
4: was like, uh, fucking like 110 decibels in volume. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I want to thank you for... uh, not only uh, jumping out with me, but doing this crate digging with us. Yeah, I'll do. I'll do. I'll do my best. Yeah,
4: <laughs> and I'll preface by saying that I was so anti-metal in the '90s <laughs> that it was. It, yeah, I was kind of like, oh, I'm gonna have to like figure out which ones I learned to love after the '90s was over. But in spite of that, there were a few records on there that I actually did quite love when they were out.
3: Yeah, 90s metal was actually really, you know, a lot of people thought it was like a down decade because, you know, grunge came about and kind of dominated. But, you know, now going back, there were a, a number of strong albums. But it, you don't think of it like 80s metal, like where you get that thrash and stuff like that. Right.
4: Well, there was a lot of bad metal.
3: In yeah.
4: The, a lot of like really, really dicey stuff that I, that I don't like. So, yeah, I mean, we can start with kind of start wherever it's, I don't
3: mean. We can start with like Entombed. <laughs>
4: Well, again, I'll I'll preface this one, especially by saying that Entombed was not on my radar as a kid growing up in southwestern rural Virginia as a kid. So I think I discovered, I'm sure that I discovered Entombed probably post 2000. But to say that they were influential on our band would be something of an understatement because I think ultimately what I picked up and what was so crucial to me about Entombed wasn't that they were at the forefront of a death metal surge, but rather that they were a metal band that, like many and almost all of the metal bands that I've that I really loved in my life, they had a punk background. or They had they seemed to have the spirit of punk rock that was, that was sort of alive and well uh, within their ranks. And the thing that really impressed me about in the Left Hand Path era was just that they would do these kind of, bonkers at left field cover songs which gave me the perspective that I needed to be in that clan but you know I think between Left Hand Path and Ever Flowing Stream I definitely started collecting Boss HM2 pedals for sure there's like just like a distinct sonic thing that they, that they did that I think became so commonplace in music after that but was something that I always thought would be fun to apply to Darnass so they were a great band to me and I again I really really that record is so, so, so good, so crucial, but it really, the record itself kind of represents more than just the music on it, you know, like their sort of, you know, again, like left field vantage point on, on metal was, I think one that, maybe wasn't super popular at the time, but has since then become, kind of become the template where, you know, metal bands reach way outside of their chosen genres to find inspiration. I think, I think they're very, they're very important band in death metal for that reason.
3: Cool. And uh, Sepultura, Chaos AD.
4: All right, so Sepultura, Chaos AD was hands down the first metal record I ever loved, straight up. Again, I think it's because it's kind of a punk record at the same time. I think the cool the greatest thing about chaos ad was in the very very early days of baroness touring our original guitar player tim and i when we were on long draw i mean this is way after you know i discovered it when i was like in my teenage years but uh you know years and years later when baroness was on our, our early tours our guitar player tim and i we'd up late night driving you know eight hours a night and we could listen to that record over and over and over and over again there is something in its songwriting in its simplicity and really, like, there's some production flourishes on the record that make it, it's a very gentle record to listen to. It's like pre-Loudness War, everything metal. And to me, I, I responded really, really well to like the, you know, the sort of the beginning underpinnings of their sort of tribal drum flow. But what I, what really impressed me was that I could, at a very early age, I could, I could sort of play their riffs, you know, I can't say that for, certainly can't say that for like a death album or, you know, even at the gates. Like, it's, it's really, it's tricky. It's tough. Music, but every sepultura record seems to seems to be like designed in a tuning of the guitars. It's just like a lot of open string stuff, and so the so the riffs have this real sort of you know beefy and butt head quality. And what I mean is that you can kind of sing them like just in da na 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 na, you know. So I mean, I love Michael Whelan's cover art for that. You know, as a as an art fan, like I, I love that, and I just loved how it sounded like metal, but it also sounded like all the furious sort of unchecked energy of punk rock. So yeah, it was a, that was absolutely like a classic record for me.
3: And next we have, you know, obviously one of the biggest metal albums of the 90s, Pantera, Vulgar Display of Power. Go ahead on that one as yeah, well. Yeah, and you know,
4: I grew up in the country and there wasn't, there weren't a ton, ton of kids that I knew that listened, that liked aggressive or hard music like that. But I remember when I was, you know, probably 10 or 11 years old, I remember that little bit on Headbangers Ball that was, it was mysterious to me for, for, for a little while. Like I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was theme music for, I thought it was simply theme music written for, for Headbangers Ball. But then I realized, you know, I learned at some point that was Pantera. And, you know, around the time Vulgar Display came out, I mean, it was, it was a little difficult as an MTV watching kid to avoid it, but I love, I love the swagger. I, you know, being from the South, I think that there was a ton of what, what Pantera was doing, even on vulgar display of power, that felt familiar to me because it seemed to come from southern rock. I mean, they, they certainly developed that more on further albums, but yeah, that, that and Chaos A B were like literally like the only two metal records that were you know out and out metal records that I listened to when, when I was uh, when I was a teenager. Like that, I remember like not really knowing what how you supposed to, how you were supposed to like move to that music, but I you could kind of see in the videos like the stomping thing, and I remember stomping around my bedroom a lot as like a 12-year-old to go uh, to display.
3: Well, you mentioned them just a little bit earlier, At The Gates.
4: There would be no baroness whatsoever without At The Gates. Our original guitar player, and Tim and I, uh, when I first moved to Georgia in 2000, he was a friend of mine from growing up in Virginia. He happened to be stationed there in the military. At the end of every week, we'd get together, we'd go to you know, like the record store and we'd buy whatever like metal stuff they had on the racks. I think I'd read something in Terrorizer you know, at the Gates in around 2000. When we got Slaughter of the Soul, it was like our musical Bible for the next six months. We just, it was just simply a matter of like learning those parts. And in doing so, there is a type of simplicity to the to the guitar playing, but it's a really insistent sort of simplicity, which becomes complex. It really taught us how to play the sort of 16th notes. Like, you know, that they have that kind of like and that sort of six over eight field that's pretty much the whole record was incredible to me. But again, I, I really liked that, that there was like a punk thing to it. You know, it really felt like, I really felt like I was listening to like punk dudes who had better techniques than most, most punk bands. So I, I absolutely, I mean, like everybody else in that era, like just lost my mind to that. It's so catchy. It's so hooky. You know, and I've seen them several times. I saw them several times last year, like Tomas and I are pretty good friends at this point. But I can't, it's like so undeniable how catchy that music is because when you see it now, everybody's everybody from the 13-year-old kid next to you, to like, you know, 60-year-old guy, like, everybody knows the words somehow. It sounds like a paradox of being tortured with hot pokers, but there's like an articulation to it. Like, you hear the words, it's crazy hooking. It's like, you know, they're like the HCD scene for people like me.
3: <laughs> I like that analogy. Next, we go over to the uh, technically proficient uh, masuga.
4: Yeah. So this, you know, I, re- I do distinctly remember discovering this record, again, probably in 2000. And I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, I absolutely hated it. I couldn't. I was just like, nah, this is not for me. I don't. There was something I didn't like about it, just at like a gut level. And I was so wrong about everything with down that when I finally allowed myself to dig into what sugar was, I became a diehard fan for life. And I'll say that the story Erase and was the record that turned me into ultimately did turn me into a fan of theirs because I, I, it's not like a broken record here, but it kind of had this, like it kind of sounded like a hardcore record a little bit, a little teeny, teensy bit, you know, more so than what they, when they became this like juggernaut after that record was, um, you know became a worldwide phenomenon but that is in you know the 2023 lineup of baroness that's one of like five bands that we all just out and out agree on like they're just it's it's weird how they're a band that all of my members share in common uh, a fandom for and it's kind of a like a a great musical glue for us but my sounds so different than baroness and they've taken us on a tour. And actually, that was a pretty big tour for us, was to tour with them and uh, capitated back in the day. But there's so many ideas that they use that we just kind of like co-opt from time to time because we know we'll never play it like them. and no Nobody can, really. Just a fantastic band. And to me, as extreme as they are, it's intensely listenable music.
3: And then from there, we go to Neurosis through Silver and Blood.
4: Yeah, which as should come as no surprise as absolutely like foundational level, uh, record for me. Neurosis was, I would say my spiritual guide through the early, the first decade of our, of our band. The ideas on through silver and blood have never ceased being relevant ideas to revisit for me when I'm like out of fresh thoughts. I'll just, you know, I'll go, I'll go like, I don't know if you remember that relapse sampler that had a live version of Locust Star from OzFest 90 whatever. And it's like an untoppable musical performance by any group ever. It's the most intense live footage I've ever seen. And when I've met people throughout my life who haven't heard Neurosis, I always point them first to that that record, but most importantly, go check out the video for Locust Star from the OzFest. It's on a relapse sampler. So I'm sure now it's just on YouTube. That's all you need to know about that band. Just, it's just pure, pure power.
3: <laughs> or punk. I, I see a running or theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we go to the great Chuck Schuldiner, Death.
4: Individual Thought Patterns, believe it or not, is my favorite death record. And I don't know that it's just because Andy LaRocque's on it, but I really love the melody that Andy brings to this particular record of theirs. And I think that lyrically... This is the record where death makes the most sense to me. It seems like Chuck has fully embraced like serious lyrics and the music is like sort of dizzyingly complicated to me. But because he's got a few new players on this, I, I think, I mean, it was only, I think it's the only one that Andy was on, but maybe the first or second record with Steve DiGior- DiGiorgio. And there's like a weird uptick in melody on this, which, which I like because I, it's, you know, as Baroness fans are probably where I do, I do like melody and harmony. And there's some, it's, there's some really, really cool playing on this record. You can't talk about death without talking about guitar solos and this rash cut into like an insane, insane amount of guitar solos.
3: Cool. And then I like that you have this one kind of mixes it up a little bit. Uh, tones.
4: Yeah. Def, Deftones, I discovered in. Mm, yeah in the late 90s or no i was aware of them in the late 90s i was going to school and in the summer times i had to work on the like sanitation grounds crew so we we'd, we'd be walking around providence rhode island just like picking trash up off the streets and and so one of my couple friends that also had to do this for work during the summers, like had like a little boom box thing and we'd all take days on the boom box and my my shit was always just like punk as fuck and my buddy Peter Good had this, he was like such a big Deftones fan. And I was like, ah, no, no, I'm not really into new metal. I'm not really into new metal. Don't play it, don't play it. But then day he put it on, I was like, oh, it's much better than what I've been sold to the press. It's sort of like heavy metal smashing pumpkins with a singer who's like somehow always a few cents flat on his notes. But that seemed awesome to me, you know, like it was like cool in the way that Tool wasn't, you know, it was like, there was like a progressiveness. I mean, it was the drum, you know, the drumming was like real progressive and the rips are real like bow, bow, heavy, but it didn't sound pretentious. It just sounded kind of like wild and feral. At first, it was like a secret love for the Deftones. And then and then we toured with them in 2009 or 2010, I think. And ever since then, I've just been like openly a Deftones fan. I I love the way they do things. I love touring with them. They're a fantastic band. And this, you know, this record's got arguably like two or three of their like all-time classic tunes on it. It's a great one.
3: Now I can save you a little there's five uh left on your list but two left in terms of 10 we have carcass obituary
4: well let's let's do car let's do carcass for sure
3: yeah go for carcass and then uh, we'll decide on those
4: okay so carcass heart heartwork in particular carcass's album heartwork was a turning point for my interest in metal in 97 i think that record came out 96 i can't remember but I heard it in '97 or '98, and a friend of mine played it for me, and I remember. I remember my response to him was after listening to the entirety of artwork. I think I like metal now, and it's. So, I sort of have loved it since then. You know, it was the first, the first like modern metal record that my stubborn punk rock listening ass would. Would would get into you know during my you know sort of late teen years and it's it was sort of my introduction into it. I mean, it definitely was my introduction to melodic extreme metal, which was having a bit of a thing in the late '90s and then through the early 2000s while we were forming. So it was, yeah, I would say it was actually like a kind of a, a pivotal record to to come out with me. I think being you know like the type of arrangement and composition that, what was his name, Michael Amott brought as their, you know, as their new lead guy, unbeknownst to me, but it was sort of like, oh, this is like Iron Maiden, if I, if I liked Iron Maiden, because, you know, there was, there was har- like a harmonic presence, or thin, it was like thin Lizzie but extreme, and I, you know, in, li- in listening to it now retrospectively, it's, or retroactively, it's kind of a rock and roll record, I mean, just like straight up, it's like mid-paced, there's melodies, there's like kind of classic rock riffs, and it makes sense to me now, but, you know, through the early 2000s, I thought it was a really weird, it was a really weird turn for them to take after uh Action and stuff like that. Because those records are just like disgusting. And then here's this like musical melodic thing. Yeah, so I loved finding those records that felt like the band like waking up or like trying something really bold out i think "Slaughter of the soul was like a bold move i think "Heartwork" was a bold move because they were so so over the top melodic you know that was a good entry point for me into you know that type of model
3: we have one more slot and you have four more albums obituary gorguts and morbid angel i mean if you i can save you the talking and you can just choose one and we can end. yeah this. let's
4: just choose let's just choose one well, let's just do Morbid Angel. Let's do Bloodsucker the Sick. I felt lucky that this was the Morbid record that came out in the '90s because it's it also is my favorite uh, Morbid Angel record. It's got all the like chaotic wildness of Altars, and but with some of the like chunk that you get on their on the follow or what is it Covenant? Yeah. But I was really obsessed with how unfettered. The record felt like it's sort of you know the first time, the first listen i had with this was like it's sort of beautiful but like beautiful in a way that feels very alien to me like i don't like maybe maybe there's a species of being on from a different planet who have a different sort of culture and this to them is like beethoven's night because it felt orchestral and otherworldly and kind of disgusting but like I think those, and I think especially those early Morbid Angel records have this sort of like genuine disgusting sound that if you distance yourself from like the fact that it sounds gross, it's just sort of their their weird guttural, you know, H.P. Lovecraft chaos language of music, uh, which I thought was you know, really important. I remember like the old issues of, you know, some of those like metal, those glossy metal mags that somehow made their way into Rockridge County, Virginia. And I remember seeing pictures of Trey and this is all I remember of it was just the, like he's playing that beast rich and there's just blood all over him. And they're talking about how you, like, bite his lips and just, like, bleed all over. And I was just like, that's so gnarly. <laughs> it's so brutal. And then, of course, there was the Beavis and Butthead sort of breakout thing. But I think that was Covenant. Something off the covenant Dominion or something or domination. Uh, but yeah, for me, Blessed is, is like the, what most, how most people think of Alters of Madness, I think it's Blessed or the Sick. It's, it's just sort of this growth. It's like the audio equivalent of the best HP Lovecraft story.
3: Very cool. Well, thank you so much for doing that. While I have you, I do have just a few Baroness questions. Let's do it. Yeah. So, just want to talk about the new album stone i was interested in how you recorded it because uh, in just reading some of the press materials you guys got an airbnb thing and then i think you went back yeah. to your basement studio also after that can you talk about you know how the whole process came together
4: we wrote all of the fragmented pieces of music that will become stone uh during lockdown you know, very separate from one another. So, you know, when when the lockdown occurred, we were on the precipice of I think ten eight to ten months of touring we had planned in the U.S. And, and abroad, and it was like you know it was it was pretty disappointing to to have felt that. So we immediately started writing but we knew it felt like we were in for a long long haul, like you know as we were. So everybody wrote all like all this music and we were sharing it with each other and it was happening at such a rate that it felt like a lot was going to get lost if we didn't figure out a way to record it so Woody felt like we'd finally like achieved the know-how and the confidence to make our own record to produce it ourselves to record it ourselves with what limited equipment that I, I have collected over 15 years which is I would say 95% of our studio is built from Craigslist and eBay, you know, like, li- like literally just been collecting pro audio gear and watching other producers make my music or, you know, make my music for so long that it felt like this was a great opportunity for us, not only to come together and like figure out what to make of these songs, but to have a purpose and a reason to do it and that we have always talked about becoming more and more independent. And I've always talked about like doing our records ourselves. And it seemed important that with Stone that we just don't Head first off that cliff uh, to see what we're made of. So we got an Airbnb that was roughly two and a half hours from both Philadelphia and New York, but out into the out into the woods. Uh, and this again it's during lockdown, so there not only would there have been no distractions otherwise, but there really weren't any distractions in the area we were at. We're outside a little area called Berryville, which is like a two stop light town on the border of Pennsylvania and New York, with no real businesses to speak of, and none of which we ever visited anyhow. So we spent a month in a cabin, and I mean, in part. Part of it was like we were just totally bullshitting each other, you know? Yeah, I can I know how to build a studio. I know how to make a record, you know, in that environment. And we did, you know. We we've kind of set our so task, spent about thirty six hours building a studio from pieces from scratch, uh that we'd never done before. And then we spent a month rehearsing and jamming and just going through, you know, twelve hours a day of just playing music, playing music, playing music. And as soon as anything sort of began to feel like it was halfway a song, we just hit record before or well before we had worked out all the details uh, and tried to capture that all. And I think that the, the process of, you know, making a DIY record or, you know, reclaiming just another, you know, more and more pieces of independence, you know, both creatively and in terms of the way that, you know, the r- record is made and, and released, claiming that authority over, over our own creativity in a full way, you know, in a, in a fully three-dimensional way where... We had no assistants, we had no technicians, we had no we had no one listening and weighing in on the quality of what we were creating. It really gave us this the sort of like fire under ass that we needed in order to make something that could stand up on its own, that we're fully proud of, that had every ounce of us in it, that really utilized not just our, you know, technical know how but the chemistry that we you know, accumulated over nearly 10 years of touring through this lineup. And yeah, it was a, it was an awesome process because we didn't know really how to do anything accurately or precisely. So we sort of made up, we invented the entire time we're doing, which for me and and my bandmates is actually the best way to work. We appreciate and, and enjoy that sort of authority over our own thing. You know, we appreciate that independence and we as a group know how to do it respectfully. To one another. We know how to keep each other motivated, we know how to keep each other from wasting time and you know it was just a really, it was a really great experience. It was a tremendous amount of work but very rewarding as a result you know whereby we experienced the success that we needed off of this record before it's even really, we all feel really good about it and the process of making it was you know it's as if we just defined and invented the, the way that we work from here on out. So I think it was kind of a crux point for us and, and a great experience.
3: Very cool. And I'll just touch on a couple of the songs. Beneath the Rose was very interesting in that there's, I found like a very uh, Jim Morrison vibe to the verses, almost that like, yeah, you know, that kind of talk-singy thing and even just the intonation and the inflection, I, very Doorsy, if you will. Uh, yeah, yeah. To hear, yeah, more on that one and that kind of decision to approach the vocals on that one like that.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was just, it, you know, the, it's, it's really weird because I've said I've talked a lot in, the, in this prep cycle about how there was a period of time where, like, the music came pretty easily. The music was a lot of work, but it came easily. And then, you know, during lockdown, I didn't really have anything to write about lyrically, so it took me another year and a half to finish, finish up the vocals on this record. And the real inspiration motivation that I received was when we finally started touring again. I realized then that it's the experience, my experience in the world, that gives me what I need to be driven to write, and gives me subject matter, and gives me substance and, and experience. Again, so while we were on that tour where you saw us at Loud in mean, Life, which was a with Lamb of God and Suicide Silence, going out on a tour with those two bands who are, who are fairly extreme and fairly it's it's fairly like aggressive kind of it's got a sort of macho vibe to it. So. I could, you know, we kind of had this talk before the tour about how I was going to, I was like, I need to, I need to connect with these crowds on stage and I don't know what they're going to, you know, I I really didn't know what they were going to be like, whether or not they were going to like sort of accept us from the onset or who gonna have to like earn it night after night. And I think it was a little bit, honestly, I think it was a little bit of both. I was kind of surprised, but I very early in the tour adopted this mic, like in between songs, when I was doing my mic sets, I, I adopted this kind of like inflated character, like part WWE Heart, you know, English Victorian poet. Like I was just saying, it was really we- I was saying things in a really weird sort of like pentameter, but with with a lot of like weird machismo not machismo, but like you know, like loud talking. Because I, I need I need to get people's attention and uh and I know our music sometimes is a little bit more emotional, it's a little more melodic or softer than, than the other bands. And so I just developed this like in-between song banter voice that when I came back from tour, I I was like excited to see it work. And it's long because I found myself slipping into just not just a rhythm but like a tone and that tone vocal you know from a technical vocal standpoint was was a very a very much like my like a, a genuine voice a full-bodied voice and so I was curious to see if that was potentially something that could be musical because it felt a little musical when I was talking I I, I start to slip into the rhythm and 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 it was like there was a beat behind it anyway so I try, you know, I just started applying it to songs, and you know, especially the more like sort of worked up I was. I remember, you know, that that song and the following song on the record choir. I was really pissed off about something. I was really upset about something, you know, and I I needed to just like have a cathartic experience. So it was like at two in the morning. It's not like like, pick a fight with somebody on the street, you know. (laughs) So I go down into my basement recording studio, and I just would start freestyling and improvising you know sort of stream of consciousness stuff knowing that type of approach had a built-in rhythm and yeah i think that uh, what you hear in beneath the rosewoods you hear in choir are like first or second tries and so and, and in some cases just using words that naturally come out and then i would sort of refine those work on those for a bit and then do it a second time and that's what you that's what you hear on the record you know it's it was a really it's really nice to be able to discover a new style and then it's i think this record gave us a good opportunity because we were doing it independently and there's no one to talk us down we were able to really push into that territory without wondering whether or not it was going to work not that i ever do i'm not really concerned about it. you know i i hope it relates to reaction i assume that most people going to hear you know we're going to hear that song and go, oh, okay okay i need to listen to that again before i make a decision whether or not i like that but that i think i feel like that's actually a pretty accurate description of most of our records they're definitely growers in my even in my opinion i don't think any of our records it's like obviously awesome the first time you hear it i mean it might be obviously interesting but you got to get in there a little bit and you know you got to get in there and listen and understand the way that the vocals are presented in the same way that i had to like get in there and try to understand them while i was you know while i was creating them so i you know it's It's nice to discover a new, you know, musical tool that you've got. Uh,
3: I mean, another song that I really enjoyed, we actually named it our, a consequence, we named it our heavy song of the week, which is Shine. I feel that song epitomizes like Baroness. You get a, you kind of- get a little bit of the intro. You get the heaviness, the melody, the harmonies with Gina. Like, I really wanted to hear a little bit more about that one. I really think that's like a- I really... Yeah, so that, that song
4: is really fun to write because I the original, gen, the genesis of that song was I was, in, I was I was up in New York visiting our rhythm section. Maybe we were rehearsing or maybe, I don't know. I was going into Brooklyn for some reason or other. And I was over, I was crossing over the Brooklyn Bridge at like dusk and it was just like that critical sunset moment where, you know something atmospheric happens in between daytime and nighttime and you know you feel it at festivals right when that sun hits that perfect point something changes and like everything means a little bit more to you you know sentiment get like ramps up and i was listening to Aphex twin but a song they wrote uh, that he wrote called number three off of ambient Collected Works. i think it's just four notes sort of played as chords just in a, in a certain sequence and i was like that's awesome this is like such a cool song it's It's barely, it's barely a song. It's so minimal. It's just these four notes sort of repeated with very little variation and very little like movement in it. And I was like, fuck that. I'm, I'm taking that. I'm like, I was going to take that chord progression because I like the way it sounds. I'm going to turn it into a guitar thing. I'm going to harmonize it and then see where it goes. And so the song was like built off of that really simple four chord idea. And the introductory guitars there, that sort of ambient passage at the beginning, was actually I just it is literally the demo performance that I made to show everybody the song that I've written. But I felt like it sounded so cool, like I didn't want to re I didn't want to redo it because I I thought well this is kind of exactly the way I want the intro to sound. So we just cut out the demo and just that first part plopped it in there. And then as soon as the drums kick in, that's you know that's the band playing. And I actually think that that chorus might be, I don't know, it's too early for me to say, but I think that's one of the strongest hooks we've ever written. With this record, Gene and I, when, when we got to the vo- work in vocals, we really were, like every every song had to have a very good, very distinct kind of vocal styling. And I think coming off of like, making songs like Beneath the Rose, we had discovered this sort of vocal pattern that didn't need to, it didn't need to be sung so hard, with so much heart to it. You know, it was kind of, more like you could sort of speak, you could sort of shout, put a little bit of pitch to it, and it's going to sound cool. And we it sort of reminded us to the, the LA band X. So we, we kind of had this like X vibe that we were channeling because it doesn't sound like X at all in the verses. Uh, and then when we came up with those, I mean, it was really about finding this particular note and this particular harmony in the chorus that felt it felt like a light bulb went on, and, and you know, and I really, I really think, genuinely, like in terms of songwriting, arrangements, compositions on on the record, I don't think there there might not be a totally a stronger compositional song on, on the record because the chorus hits so hard, and and you know, may, maybe kind of an outlier chorus for us, and it's pretty simple. It's really punctual, and it kind of like revels in its own rock and rollness, which we don't normally we we normally like we uh, too much of a rock move and we'll cut it out. So going, nah, nah, nah. it felt a little odd to us to do, but I think, yeah, I think it was great. And then Gina and I got to do like a, a whole sort of, you know, more Coney Western guitar workout at the end while Seb was doing, you know, Seb was like, oh, I'm going to do like a kind of a zeppelin like groove at the end. And, you know, it was it was fun to like have reference points in and just go, okay, well, how how would we mix a Zeppelin drum beat with an Aphex Twin chord progression and kind of like, Almost like a Chino style, like chorus, melody, you know, knowing that once all those elements were together, I mean, once I apply my voice to the references, they typically become less referential and and just becomes more something that we can do. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very fun song to write. I think the high point of songwriting in the record, maybe not everybody's favorite song, but the way it's composed, I think is really, it really works well.
3: Yeah, I really love that song. And uh, you mentioned Gina. My next question was, you know, the last album, she was fairly new to the band when the last album was released. You know, I think she's been in a couple of years. Now that she's fully ingrained in the band, can you tell, like, talk about more what she brought around, brought to the table this time around uh, with the new album, Stone? I think what was important
4: for her through the writing, release and touring that we did around Golden Grey was, you know, like Nick and Seb before her with Purple, that was her introduction to how we do things. I know now having so many lineup changes that the way we appear from the outside to our to our fans, you know, the way we the way we sort of come off externally doesn't really match with the way we operate internally. Like the way the reasonings that we have, the motivations that we have and the methods that that we employ to write music can be sometimes a bit stranger, a bit more challenging than just than people assume. So I think every member that's joined us band has to go through a record of learning how things are in order that they can be themselves, themselves very sincerely as they contribute to, you know, to our music. So I'd say that the, the big difference between Golden Grey and this is, is the Gina's, you know, Gina's character is much more present and confident, you know? So we've figured out how, how our voices match together in order to use our vocals at times more as co-leads than as lead and backup. And similarly, wasn't something I really needed to learn, but she's, she's a far superior technical musician to me. So I had to get myself comfortable with sometimes feeling a little bit more like a rhythm guitar player, which I got to say after 20 years, it feels fantastic to sometimes just be the rhythm guy, not have to like do that the whole time. So I think another interesting thing about the record is everybody's contributed songs. Everybody's contributed compositionally to this record at a much more balanced rate than any of our former records. And Sheena included a lot of these songs are at, were either written by her or, or, or like have distinct parts that she's contributed that, that fit seamlessly. And, you know, there's like guitar solos. They're just like wild unrehearsed ones, which I've always had a very hardline stance against. So she, having learned through hundreds of shows and, and maybe 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 a thousand shows, guess. but certainly hundreds of shows and a lot of time on the road, a lot of time living, you know, she and I have to, she and I have to be musically bonded. We have to be like musical partners in order for us to, to write songs together because we play the same instruments. Uh, so uh, uh, you know, becoming closer, more intimate friends with her, and becoming you know a closer, more intimate musical partner with her, ha- you know, has had certainly a profound effect on, you know on the way that the with and variety with which we uh, are capable of writing songs. So, yeah, it's it's been great to see her own it so hard.
3: I got one more for you. I, I appreciate you uh, giving me all this time. Uh, you have one of the coolest tours mapped out for the fall, the, the opening, like the, the support acts <laughs> <house, laughs> one after no, Jesus Peace, Soul Glow, Spotlight, yeah. Portray of Guilt. It's like, it's basically all of these bands that have been like, creating this buzz over the last, you know, several years, a lot of some of the co- coolest bands, if you will. Yeah. Can you talk about, you know, I know with the rotating cast, it's not all those bands at one time, but regionally they're kind of touring. But can you talk about the idea about, you know, putting together that tour with this like insane rotating cast of bands and like what fans, what do you think fans can expect on this tour?
4: I mean, I, th- I think they can af- expect us to have our run for the money against, you know, the the consistency. These bands have been touring a lot more than we have the past couple of years and are in much better shape. But you, I think what we really intend with, so much of what we've done throughout our history and is to really illuminate and demystify the idea of the music scene as something that only lets certain people, as a, as a scene that has rules, you know what I mean? I think that there's a, a great amount of synchronicity between many different corners of uh, you know DIY and underground music, especially when it comes to extreme music. I think there has been at times in my life this real sort of, orthodoxy that like in the 80s or 90s, you didn't mix your punk with your metal. I mean, I, we just did an interview about that. Right. And I think these days, the lines have been ground away and now it's more mindset, you know? And so what, What I've always been interested in doing is like touring with bands that I like, you know, I don't see, there is totally in the music industry, there is this idea that you have to choose support bands that are quote unquote worth tickets or have a historic relevance at that venue. So, so they go, okay, well, last this these bands here, they sold 800 tickets, so they should be worth. And it makes me want to vomit. It makes me want to fucking kill somebody to hear the careers of my peers reduced to Take it counts in A markets. You know, it's just, we did, none of us, not even one of us got into the music industry to be part of that. We got in it to be against that. And I think that what we want to do is sort of put our money where our mouth is on that, you know, like, and all we have, it's, we want to tour with thrilling, captivating bands. With this tour specifically, I want to tour with bands that, that we love, that I go see regularly, you know, bands where I, if they're coming to town, it's in my calendar, I need to go see it thinking that logically, if it's a band I want I if it's two or three bands that I want to see, I would actively pursue. I would travel out of states seeing And my band and people presumably because people want to see our band as well. That that's enough. You know, it's it's the artists curating the night. Like why wouldn't it be that? Why would I ever take a local promoter's advice on who to have open? it's my tour it's my music it's something that we as a band built we as a music community built it's something that it's a structure that's only held up by the combined force of all of us caring putting in the work putting on great performances showing up on time doing acting the way that we we you know with respect to the other bands with respect to the audience with res- respect to the local markets and everything like that with respect to the local independent music stores I'm always like always. Oh, I'm always afraid for any band that they they fall too far off that ledge into like corporate sponsorship endorsement. You know, listen to live live Nation play your House of Blues because you want to get into those arenas and then you want to get into those stadiums and, and everything like that. When I'm just like I've always been into this for the music and there is a music scene and then just because we're less extreme or like you know there's a there's a hardcore band with a punk rock band or you know an extreme metal band with a noise band with a, contemporary, you know, moody, folk, like it doesn't matter. Like, like everybody comes from this, these bands all come from a similar background, from a similar uh, space. And I think that that's the part of the music community that I, that is worth paying attention to, which is hardworking individuals who at some point in their careers have all relied on a healthy music environment to lift them up. And, you know, who better to, who better to tour together than bands who are all who have all gone. To get you know at one point or another in their careers, I, I just think there's, there's a beauty to that, and it's not important that anybody actually understands that. Thinking, and I think that the important aspects of that will be visible and audible, or uh, you know, each night of the week. But it all boils down to this: I want to create a show that I want to go see, that I would want to go see. I want I want to create a show in Cincinnati or Louisville or Berlin or Tokyo. I want to create shows in those places that I would need to go see. I lived there so that's it seems pretty simple to me I don't know why it's not applied a bit more frequently at the you know in the upper levels of the the music bins. but there you have it